show. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'm so glad that you were here today. And let me tell you what we got for you today. Actually, let me tell you a story. Here's a story. Yesterday, I'm at home. No, I'm not at home. Yesterday, I was at work and I get an email. And it's two hours before a podcast is supposed to be recorded. And I get an email saying, hey, can we reschedule? I just broke my finger at a baseball game. Now, it was Wednesday. Um, I'm in the office one more day, Thursday. And then I'm going to be on a family vacation. And so I will not be around for a while, which means I'm not going to be in the office to post a podcast for the next two Mondays. That was one of two podcasts I had scheduled to get uh, completed Wednesday, Thursday, then I'm out of the podcast or out of the office, and so they're going to be up in the air. So uh, I get that message, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness, uh, this is a problem because I have uh, I, like I'm counting on these two podcasts to go live. I already had one the week before have an issue, and so now I'm uh, like these have to happen." And so he says that to me, and I think, "Okay, well, this isn't going to happen. I've got one Thursday. This one on Wednesday is not going to happen." And so I I start thinking. I'm just ruminating, and I have. This idea is like, wait a minute, I've got a, some of these mailbag questions are already coming in. I was uh, kind of planning on uh, spreading them out, but uh, I got some of these questions coming in already. And so what I can do is I can do just a mailbag, and then I've got something I want to share with you, uh, like a sermon I did. And so that's what I'm going to do. Well, guess what? I, I get this idea in my head, and this morning, I actually am at home. I'm working out in my garage. It's early morning, and I get an email. And the gentleman who had a broken pinky says... Hey, uh, can you do at uh, you know this time today? And I said, Yeah, actually, I can do that this morning. So I'll record the episode for July fourth this morning, the one for the last week of June, June twenty seventh. I will record that one this afternoon. Good to go. We're all great, perfect. And guess what? Record the first one, which is going to go live next week. Turned out wonderful. You're going to love the episode. And then I set up everything. I'm ready to go. I got the book out. I've got my notes for the next one, and I'm waiting. And the person like doesn't hop online. I've had it scheduled for a couple weeks. Nothing. It's about uh, five, six minutes after. I'm thinking, okay, this is a little bit peculiar. And so you know what I did? Opened up my phone, went on Instagram, and I found the person doing an Instagram live with someone else that I know, someone else who's been on the podcast. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I got double booked. This person has forgot about me. So what do I do? I go back to my original plan. And so I have a mailbag question I'm going to get to. We're going to spend some time on that. And then I've got something else I want to talk to you about. And then I'm going to play a sermon. So uh, that's the plan for today. Things got a little different, but you know what? That's life. And I was literally just telling a friend that I work with, you know what? I don't, I don't try to control anything. I've given up controlling things, or at least I am on the quest to learn how to give up control. And I hope you are too, because guess what? The more you try to control control things, the more disappointed you will be. I think you should work hard. I think you should hustle. I think you should do the best you can to be faithful to what's right in front of you. Obviously, I've done a podcast basically every week for the last 507 weeks, so it's not like I don't like, you know, do my thing to get this ready, but sometimes you just can't control it. And the more you try to control things, all you do is remember what our friend Barbara Brown Taylor has shared with us, and that is we never lose control. We just lose the illusion that we ever had control in the first place. Now, I know BBT says that's not her line, but she was the first person that I ever heard say that, so I'm going to attribute it to her. Nevertheless, you try to control things, and it just doesn't work. 
But what we do know is you fa- you are faithful to what's in front of you, and who knows what might appear. And so, what appears to us today is uh, this first mailbag question, which I think you're going to uh, really appreciate. This comes from a listener down in the great state of Texas, in the city of Houston. Here we go. This may be more than one message. Well, let's see. I guess what I'm curious about is how do you still and I'm pretty sure you've been asked this a lot, but how do you still stay at where you're at and being specific at the, at, at a church, a Christ tradition when you have deconstructed and started reconstructing many things in your life? And okay. So I bring that up because for, at least for me using the analogy of a planter's box, I, became too big for my planner's box and I needed to be uprooted and moved to a, a bigger box. And I felt um, that I couldn't stay at my current place, if that makes sense. How you've been able to uh, navigate your deconstruction through um, being, you know, one of the lead evangelists there and I mean, do you take your congregation through your deconstruction? Too? Also, I will say this. I'm a little envious that Jonathan gets a squeeze in that get ready for some awesome um, in there, even though you're not using that tagline anymore, which have you ever thought about making that into a shirt? Because that would be I would I would purchase one. Um, so here's my I'm going to nominate myself to uh, start the show off with this. Get ready for some awesome. Luke, you have a great show. Support you all the way, and uh, we'll continue to listen. Thank you, brother. Okay, so we've got uh, a few things there. Uh, First of all, we have a longtime listener who still remembers that it's time to get ready for some awesome, and uh, I I appreciate the longtime support to this person and for anyone else who gets the get ready for some awesome reference right there. Uh, A couple things. Uh, Where do we start here? Uh, First thing. Uh, me as a preacher and the church that I serve, I think first and foremost, the role of the preacher is to serve the congregation, and it's not to use preaching or any like form of leadership as your own sort of like therapeutic endeavor. There's a common kind of statement that you know preachers should not use the pulpit as the counselor's couch, and so I really want to be intentional about creating space for me to serve and then creating space for me to work through my stuff. And so I've, I've always kind of held to the moniker that you, you talk from scars, you minister from scars, you tell stories from scars, not from open wounds. And so you, you need to be at a place where your healing isn't contingent upon how people respond or experience what you share with them. It's just not fair. I think you respond to like conversations and people you are like in like, the inner circle, like Jesus and his 12 disciples, he had three that were his inner circle. Like those three are the people that, or maybe it's even the 12, but it's not like the entire crowd that if we're using the Jesus metaphor here, um, that you talk about that. And so as a pastor, I just don't think it's my place to do that. And um, yeah, so I think as a pastor, I'm not working through that. And I'll be honest, like the church that I'm currently serving, I have been serving for the past uh, almost seven years now. Like they, they got a version of me that, like really wasn't going through deconstruction. Uh, the deconstruction phase, that was a lot of the stuff that was in my book, uh, God Over Good, 
uh, was happening closer to, you know, around the age of 30. Uh, give or take a few years. And so when I got to this church a few years later, it, it just wasn't the phase that I was in. So I don't, um, like, I, I'm not going through that while I'm serving this congregation. So they don't, they don't like, uh, hear me working through that kind of stuff. Uh, but I also think that, uh, like, the work is just different uh, for being a, a pastor uh, to someone who they themselves are a, a layperson. I think, I think there's just a different kind of role I think uh, uh, it was Friedman uh, uh, was it Erdwin Edwin Friedman who talks about the well-differentiated leader and I think that's part of the responsibility of what uh, a leader has to do is they, they've got to be at a place where they're healthy enough to serve in the same way that you you don't want a lifeguard who's drowning in the pool with you um, you want someone who's in the pool with you but they need to be able to help you so uh, first and foremost it's that now the bigger question uh, that you're asking is about when is it time to go? Like, when is it time to go and when do you need to stay? I think we've seen, especially like in the Baptist world, some pretty prominent Baptist figures have left the Baptist church. Uh, Beth Moore and uh, Russell Moore, who I, like I happened to be in the same room with him uh, not too long ago and I really meant to go up and talk to him and I regret that I didn't. But those those are people who, uh, who made a change. They made a switch um, because the tradition they were part of didn't didn't fit them anymore and I, I think that they experienced one of the things that i think makes it appropriate to leave and that is it, it's just toxic it's abusive and it's to the point where it is a detriment to your spiritual growth and i think that's a time to go i think if if staying somewhere is a toxic place that is a detriment to your vitality and your faith and you having life, like you need to make a transition. In working at churches for two decades, I have not seen a lot of people leave the church because of toxicity. That isn't like the main reason people leave. Um, when people do experience abuse and when you ex- like some of the stories we've heard about Mars Hill are kind of the over the top stories that I've never experienced obviously some of you have experienced something like that unfortunately like I- I've heard the way that those stories have connected to you when we talked about the Mars Hill podcast and that's kind of terrifying to me uh, and if you're in a situation like that where it's just abusive like that's when you need to go but we're not talking about that we're talking about deconstruction here and to, to use a metaphor, like sometimes the box that you're in doesn't allow you to flourish. And I don't know if that's exactly the same as toxicity, um, but I can understand where you're going from and are coming from. And I think there are a lot of churches. And the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that there are different expressions of the kingdom of God in different churches. And I think it's a beautiful thing that um, that's available to each and every one of us. But here's what I'll say, and this is the, the rationale for why I'm saying, and I'm not trying to prescribe this for any and every person. But what I think is a lot of times we want to leave communities because we feel tension. And again, people feel toxicity and leave. That's, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about tension. And part of the tension that we experience is when we interact with people over a period of time and we realize that the relationships are far more complex and we, this is one of the things that uh, you're going to hear next week with Rich Flotus on the podcast. He talks about people who say, you know, this is the best church ever. We've never experienced anything like that. Like the preaching is so wonderful and the community is great. And Rich's response is, I always ask them, 
how long have you been a part of this church? And the response is, oh, I've been here two weeks. And his point is, when you're in community with people over a long period of time, you realize that it's really complicated. And there's a lot of layers to things. And it doesn't always um, feel exactly like you would want to uh, experience in a church. And sometimes we want to leave. And what we're really wanting to leave for is because church is just more complicated and more layered than what we're going through. And so I'd be really careful. And again, I'm not saying said listener who sent that question and is doing this, but I'd be really careful to not use deconstruction as a pretext to leave. And one of the main reasons why I stay is the very flip side of that. And that is because this is like my people. Like these are the people that uh, I've grown up with and I've known these people. And there is a connection in my tradition that transcends even people that I I know on a first name basis. I was in, uh, at the Outer Creek Church in Tennessee uh, a week and a half ago. And while I was there, I met two people. And one person uh, was a lady who's probably twice my age. And she said, hey, I know I don't know you, but I know your grandmother, your dad's mom. Uh, years ago, we were living in Texas, and your mom needed, or grandmother needed a ride from where she was living to Texarkana. And we happened to be going there, and so we took her. So I know, I know your grandmother. And then someone else, uh, same time, said, hey, I, I know I don't know you, but I know your wife's grandpa. And there's something really special about having these sort of connections. Uh, there's a song by, um, oh, I forget the name of the artist. Uh, where the song is entitled Old Friends. And there's a reference to Jimmy Eat World. And if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know I love Jimmy Eat World. But there's a, there's another line where it says, uh, I think the title of the song is Old Friends. And the song goes like, y- you can make new friends. But the thing about new friends is that, or the thing about old friends is you can't make old, <sighs> I completely butchered that. So I, I wish I would just stop this and go look it up right now. Um, but the, the point is like, there's something about old friends and people who know your story and know where you're from. And that's part of the reason why I'm, uh, I am where I am. And are, are there things that I see differently with the community I'm a part of? Sure. Of course. Uh, I think we've often thought of community as being a place where we agree on everything, but that is such a low form of unity to me. I think unity is about having something that transcends differences of opinion and bonds you together. And that's part of the reason I love being a part of the tradition I was raised in, uh, because there is something that transcends the uh, preferences that we have and opinions we have about things that are really important to us, and we read things differently. And part of what my deconstruction has taught me is that if my faith is just the ideas I have, then it's not really the faith that's going to sustain me. Because I think a lot of the things that led to my kind of faith crisis was upholding faith as a conceptual and intellectual understanding of who God is instead of an experience with God. And those sound somewhat similar, but they're vastly different. One is these are conceptions I have about who God is. These are things I understand and I'm going to write it down. And this is my nice, neat, systematic theology in which I can explain suffering. I can explain what the Bible is doing. I can explain, you know, the age to come and I can explain the second coming and I can explain what happens in the sacraments and I can explain all those things. Uh, the difference, that's the, the intellectual side of it. That's a conceptual understanding of God. I think the experiential side is this is the place where I experience God. And I experience God in the sacraments. And I experience God in the hope that sustains me for my belief of the age to come. This is the experience of God that sustains me when there are things that don't make sense to me. 
And so sometimes we go to church expecting it to sustain all the ideas I have about God. And it's this checklist that has to, okay, you got to say this about this and this about this. And when those things don't happen, we we leave. And part of what we're leaving for is because we can't withstand the tension of real community. We can't live in the pain and the complexity of real relationships. And the thing about that is you're going to go somewhere else, but what you're never going to do is fix the actual inner problem that you have. And that's the inner problem of having an inability to maintain relationships and build relationships. And the relationships that really help you grow, which is the ones you need to have at church, are ones that are, that are uncomfortable. Not too long ago, I was talking to one of my daughters, and she was going through a tough time. And uh, things were just a little bit harder than she was expecting them to be. And she was really distraught and discouraged. And I remember sitting down with her at night and I looked at her and said, we like the hard things. And, and, and then I said this like thing that kind of became a mantra. And I said, the hard things are the best things for us because that's where we get better. The hard things are the best things for us because that's where we get better. And community is like that. Like It's the best thing for us and the, the place that we're going to grow and get better is when we brush into things that are not comfortable, that, that make us feel like this isn't exactly what I wish we were doing, but you know, these are my people. This is family. Like You don't just step away from, from family. And again, there's sometimes you have to. I know that there are toxic family situations that some of you need to leave, uh, literally like in your nuclear family or in your church family, and I completely acknowledge that. But I would be very careful to lump in things that are causing discomfort with being toxic. It's not the same thing. Again, I've upheld Russell Moore and I've upheld Beth Moore as two very public figures, and what they represent are the toxicities that some people experience. And so if that's you, I'm not talking about you, okay? 100% support some of you for making a transition and leaving your faith community. But there's something really meaningful about enduring the adversity and enduring the tension because I think that's where you really get the fruit of it. I I literally was just sitting in my office uh, three hours ago and a gentleman who is, he's twice my age, was in here and he was talking about church. And he said, you know, there's certain things I really like. And he was talking about how at our church we have um, an instrumental uh, music as part of our liturgy. And he, like he didn't talk, he didn't use the word liturgy because he's not a nerd like myself. And he goes, you know, I really miss congregational singing, which is kind of like a dog whistle for Church of Christ people because that's um, typically only understood in acapella singing. And obviously there's congregational singing when there are instruments, but like in the Church of Christ vernacular, that's, that's what he means. And like I, I have no shade to throw at him for missing a type of worship. I have no shade to throw at anyone who realizes that church feels different and looks different than what it used to be. And I, I understand because change is hard. Like it really, really is, especially when it's change about something that means so much to you, like your faith community. But what he said was, is like I'm, I'm committed to this church, and I'm committed that even on Sundays when it, it, it doesn't feel like I want it to feel. I'm going to look inside myself and ask myself, what do I need to change? And I was just blown away. Like, this is a guy who's in his 80s, and he's willing to grow, and he's willing to see things differently, and he's willing to acknowledge that there are things that he likes that are his preferences that aren't there anymore, and he's okay with it. And I told him, I was like, this is what I want to be like uh, as I age, and churches, you know, less and less like the preferences that I want because I I know in 20 years the type of music that we're going to be playing is going to be like not probably what I would prefer that's just how 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 life works Um, but I don't want to be more committed to my preferences than I want to be to a community of people because that's 
that, that's not the best thing for me. The hardest things are the best things for me because that's that's when I grow. And so the reason I'm here is because I I, I love my people. I, I love my tradition, and I, I say that, and it's hard. Like it's really complex. Part of being a pastor is you don't just know how the sausage is made. Like it's your hands that are inside of it, and that's a very gross metaphor. But you know what? It's not mine. I didn't come up with it. But like you see how the how the inner workings of this community works, and it's it's hard. Like I've I've been in I've been around church for church leadership for two decades at this point and I've worked at I don't know maybe like eight different churches and I've seen a lot of stuff and it's it's hard like church is really really tough and there's part of me that says man it'd be great to just not have to deal with the messiness of community and not deal with the heartbreak and the disappointment and the ways that you know the the ways that I get hurt by people and I, I wish I didn't have to do that sometimes I really really do but what I know the best thing for me is the hard things because that's where I get better and that's where I grow. I was talking to uh, a friend who's a writer who's, who's, who's been on the show, and this is a couple years ago, and this person was talking about how there's some benefit to writer. This, I think I said he's a writer, um, but he was talking about his writing now that it's independent of being tied to a local community. It just doesn't feel the same. There's not a community in which you're working out your ideas. There's not a community in which you're you're held accountable to working through the stuff that you're saying. Like anyone can can just type down some words about what you think it means to follow Jesus. But if you're doing it all by yourself, like that that, that ain't it, bro. Like that, it's just not. It's just not it. There's this old uh, proverb, I think it's an African proverb, that um, I really fell in love with like maybe 15 years ago when I first got out of school, and I said it so much that I've got a guy in Florida who every time he hears it, he says, hey, Luke, this person's quoting you, and it's obviously not my line, but uh, years ago, it meant a whole lot to me, and it's still good, but uh, the line is this, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. I think I would be real hesitant to step outside of community because if you want to go far, you got to go together. And again, some people need to. Some people don't fit in their planner's box anymore. And some people need a change and they need to make a transition. But that's not all of us. It ain't all of us. And I'm afraid that sometimes we use... We use whatever we can as an excuse for us to cover up the discomfort of being in community and the discomfort of having to sit with people who know your secrets, people who know your issues, who know your problems, and you have history with. And the thing about church is it's like that's kind of what it's supposed to be. And it's easier said than done. I know that. But I've also had to live through that myself. And it's the, the, the tough part about church. I mean, it's really tough to be a pastor when you have like tension like that but that's that's the best things for us because that's that's when we grow so um i feel like i made enough caveats about i know some people need to leave but if the answer is why am i staying excuse me if the question is why am i staying like that's my answer so um that's a mailbag question (laughs) next week's uh, mailbag question is going to be from a listener who decides they want to know and uh, guess my top five favorite Calvinists. So I guess I, I, I mentioned that I have a list of top five favorite Calvinists so much so that one of the uh, questions that, that got sent in was about who those top five are. And uh, how about this? If any of you can uh, can guess my top five, um, I'll send you, I'll get you a book. Um, if you guess the top five that I have, how about this? If you get four out of five of my favorite Calvinists and tag me on social in it, 
and next week when the episode comes out and you get four out of the five you got to post before the episode comes out so we like we know it's real um tell me the book that you want and i'll get you a book that's been on the podcast recently and uh that will be your prize if you get four out of the five favorite calvinists that i have so um i had one other my goodness that was 24 minutes uh i had one other thing i want to rant on for a second um but i don't think i have time at this point so uh i'm gonna play this uh this sermon i did and uh it's a sermon about uh re- relationships and it's a sermon about uh like the power of um of investing in something that lasts so in a lot of ways uh this uh this connects to what uh this question was about so it makes sense to go together and uh i think i'm gonna stop talking at this point but uh, thanks for listening if you got more mailbag questions uh send them in to me and uh you might hear some more and if you want to actually hear your voice on the podcast send in a voice memo uh, you can send it through instagram uh, that's probably the easiest way to do it so here we go all right well good morning and welcome to westover if you are new to westover thank you for being with us today it is our honor to see you here uh, if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn there? If you don't have one, don't worry. The words will appear uh, on the screen. Now, you might have heard the story about a preacher. Goes and visits someone. Goes to her home. Knocks on the door. And this woman doesn't answer. And so the preacher does what everyone wants. And he makes a Bible pun. Writes a verse down on a sticky note and leaves on the door. The verse is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here I stand at the door and knock. Feels pretty good about himself. Leaves, goes back home. The next day he goes to his office and on his door is a sticky note also with a Bible verse inscribed. This verse is Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, which says, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Got to watch out for those sticky notes. Watch out for those. Before Genesis 3, there was Genesis 2. Genesis 3 describes a reality that I think everyone can relate to. The reason why we wouldn't answer the door if it was knocking. But Genesis 2 pictures a different reality than what you and I have probably ever experienced. And so as we continue in worship, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 2. And so if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Genesis chapter 2, starting verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle. And to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field, but for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So in the beginning you have Adam and Eve. 
And this is the first couple that has not been tarnished at all. They haven't been impacted by death. They haven't felt the corrosive power of death upon them. So when they get together, they don't need premarital counseling. They don't need to read his needs, her needs. They don't need to figure out each other's love language. They, they go together. They're supposed to be together. It's, it's easy. It, it works. But what you and I know is that relationships, even the best ones, are complicated. It's hard to have relationships sometimes. It's hard to get along with your siblings or your stepbrother or your spouse or your kids. It's complicated. But we must remember that in the beginning it wasn't this way. But in the beginning you have Adam and Eve. And Adam needs a partner and so God causes Adam to fall asleep and from Adam's rib Eve is created. She's not from Adam's feet to be trampled upon. She's not from Adam's head to rule over him, but she's from his side to be a partner, a helper. They go together in the same way that Israel has a helper in Yahweh, God. Adam now has a helper in Eve. They, they, they go together. And, and the names kind of imply it. We, we get that in the English, man and woman, the, the names kind of echo that. The Hebrew does the exact same thing. It's almost like she's Betty to his, or excuse me, he's Bobby to her, Bobby Joe. Like the, the names just go together. That's Genesis 2. But we don't all live in Genesis 2. Genesis 3 might be more like what we've experienced. Let me tell you one of the greatest failures in my ministry career. Uh, There was a woman at our previous church that we served, who after years of hearing my preaching, who, who after being in our home and eating meals and sharing plenty of time together, she decided that she was going to apply and actually be accepted to be on a reality TV show on the Discovery Channel. And that show was entitled Naked and Afraid. Despite being told that it was appropriate, I was far too afraid to ever watch it. But that's our reality. The idea of ever being fully seen is uncomfortable, but in Genesis 2, it's not that. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not afraid. But that's not our reality. Our reality is Genesis chapter 3. Something has happened between this and our reality. Adam and Eve are told not to eat the forbidden fruit. They eat it and what happens is death enters the world. And relationships change. And so Genesis 3, God's presence appears and Adam and Eve sense God in the garden. So God says, where were you? And they say, I I, I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. It's the opposite of this. And that's the reality of relationships. That there are things you don't want revealed, that you don't want to be seen, that you don't want to be fully known because things are different now. There's a line in a song by John Mayer. It says, hurt me once, I let it be. Hurt me twice, you're dead to me. Three times makes you family. Relationships are complicated outside of Genesis 2. The poet Alexander Pope said, to err is human. Scripture says something very similar when it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And those choices to sin, to step outside of God's intention for you, affect and hurt the people around us. And so we don't want those things to be seen. Because it causes tension in relationships. There was a woman in Seattle a few years ago, who after many years, her beloved husband passed away. And so she went and got a stonemason to engrave on his headstone three words, rest in peace. And then four months later, she found out that this man, her husband of many years, had cheated on her. And so she goes to the same stonemason and asks him to add four more words to his headstone. The words were, till we meet again. (laughs) Relationships are complicated. There are things that we don't want others to see because we don't live in Genesis 2 anymore. We aren't fully seen and accepted and known, but we are hiding. There's this beautiful passage of scripture in the book of Song of Solomon, in which you have a man describing the love of his life. And he uses this beautiful poetry, at least it was intended to be beautiful poetry. He describes her eyes and says, your eyes are like doves. And he says, your hair is like a flock of goats, which I think was romantic back in the day. And then he says, your neck is like the Tower of David, which was built in corsets. I don't know what that means at all, but I assume it's romantic. And then the writer says these words from Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Someone living the Genesis 3 reality, this isn't Genesis 2, this is Genesis 3. This is the world you and I live in, yet he writes, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. There's no flaw in you. A couple weeks ago, I referenced a line from a Tim Keller book. In the quote, this Presbyterian minister, Tim Keller, says that he's far too sick of descriptions of marriage that are far too sentimental that describe relationships like fairy tales. They're not reality. And so after services, I usually do, I'm standing right back there, and two people come up and, and share their opinion on that quote within a minute to me. One person says, I just love that quote. It's, it, it's, it's spot on. Marriage isn't sentimental. It's not a fairy tale. It's, it's more complex than that. And another person says to me, I don't like that quote at all. That's not my experience. One person loved the description. The other person didn't like it. I tried to think, what was the difference? And I realized there was just one difference. The person who said he didn't like the quote was standing next to his wife. (laughs) But I think actually there's something to be said about how you can see marriage as a fairy tale. In the same way that you could look at your spouse and say there is no flaw in you. That despite the fact that to be human means that you err, despite the fact that hurt me three times means your family, despite the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the God and have complications because of that in relationships, is because you see things through the power of the redemptive love of God. And so the way that you see one another looks like this. There is no flaw in you. 
It, it doesn't mean the Bible's description that all have sinned is not true. It means that you have experienced the redemptive power of love in your life. So the way that you see the people in your life has drastically changed. Love gives you the eyesight to see it this way. Years ago, I, I heard one of my mentors, a preacher in Fort Worth named Rick Ashley, say that it's not that couples fall out of love. It's that couples fall out of forgiveness. It's not that couples really fall out of love, which we hear that phrase all the time. We just, we just fell out of love. And it's not that. It's that we fall out of forgiveness. Paul will write in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, in the chapter on love, that love keeps no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of what flaws you have. Love keeps no record of the ways that you have erred and hurt me. Love keeps no record of the way that your sin has messed up my life. Another translation of that verse says that love is not resentful. If you're being resentful, you're not being loving. You're not keeping God's desire for how relationships work in your life. The author Gary Thomas is a good Baptist Christian. And one day he was visiting a high church, kind of a higher church that has a confessional, confessional booth. And being the curious Baptist that he was, who'd never seen one of these before, he decided that on this day, not when there was a service, not when anyone was around, that he was going to go look at this confessional booth and see how they worked. And so he went to the other side where the priest typically sat, and he looked back there and found the one thing you don't ever want to find in a confessional booth, a file cabinet. Can you imagine you're confessing and they're just writing down? On this day you did this, and this day you did that. You don't want to find that with the person you're confessing things to. And even more than that, you don't want to find that in your homes. You don't want to find the people that you're most connected to, that they're keeping a filing cabinet of all the flaws that you have. Because if you do, what you're going to find is you're falling out of love. Now, Jesus has some very specific teachings on forgiveness. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray like this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is very specific. If you want to experience the forgiveness of God, then you have to give the forgiveness of God to others. After the Sermon on the Mount, or excuse me, in the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you're keeping a record of wrong, if you're writing down all the flaws, if you're keeping an account of how they have hurt you, what's God supposed to do, according to Jesus? I mean, how sad would it be if your heavenly father doesn't forgive you because you don't forgive your earthly father? Or if you don't forgive your earthly spouse? Or you don't forgive your earthly children? Family gives you plenty of opportunities to forgive them. And there's a story in the Jerusalem Post a few decades ago. uh, There was a woman who was at home and she saw a cockroach. 
And so she hates cockroaches, so she tried to step on it and kill it, but the thing was a cockroach, so it didn't die. And so she scoops it up and throws it in the toilet, and the thing is still moving. And so she gets a can of insecticide and empties the entire can on the toilet where the roach is. And then shuts the lid and leaves and runs to the other side of the house. Well, her husband comes home from work and he's smoking. And after a long day at work, he comes home. First thing he does, he has to go to the restroom. And so he goes to the restroom as he's smoking and he drops his lit cigarette in the toilet, not thinking anything of it. Next thing you know, there is an explosion that happens and he's burnt. And so his wife calls, calls and gets help. Ambulance arrives, EMTs are on the scene, and they pick this guy up who's covered in burns, and they start to carry him out of the house. And they ask the question, okay, he's burnt, but what caused the burn? And the woman explained, well, she's actually did this, the insecticide caused it to blow up, and they start to laugh so much that they drop him, and he falls and breaks a rib and his pelvis. Marriage gives you plenty of opportunities to learn how to forgive. Side note, when my wife and I were dating, she once had a cockroach in her dorm room at ACU and she emptied an entire can of mace trying to kill this cockroach. Which is why I don't smoke at home anymore. Don't smoke. (laughs) Marriage gives you plenty of opportunities to have to forgive. It's been said that marriage is to have the same fight with the same person 10,000 times. Which means it gives you 10,000 opportunities to learn how to forgive. Uh, Peter will write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, that love covers a multitude of sin. And if you're not allowing others' sins to be forgiven, then maybe you're sinning just as much. Now, there's another way to read that verse from Song of Solomon, chapter 4. There's a way to look at this verse from Song of Solomon, chapter 4. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. As though that you found amongst 7 billion people in the world the one person that has no flaws. Right? Like, there's a way to read this, not that I see you through the lens of love and therefore I'm forgiving you, but it, there's a way of reading this that goes, you know what, there's 7 billion people in the world, but there's one person that has no flaws. Right? Like, maybe in your head, before you committed to someone, before you got married, you had this list of things that they would be like. Right? And so this one person fix, fixes and, and fills every box on your list. That this is the one perfect person. The problem with those lists is that usually the lists are things that make you want to date someone. It's not the things that make a marriage work, right? Like when my wife and I got married, my wife is the daughter of a coach. And so my wife always wanted someone who, who likes sports. So 20 years later, the things that my wife was attracted to are not the things that keep our marriage working. Like for example, Two weeks ago, hypothetically, on a Sunday night when I'm supposed to take the trash out, hypothetically, maybe I forgot to do it two weeks ago. And so for an entire week, we have like these trash bags that are kind of forming around our house. Hypothetically, of course. Not once did my wife say, you know what, I'm so annoyed with these trash cans around the house, but good thing was, 20 years ago, I sure liked watching Luke play intramural sports. Right? She never said that. She's never been like, Luke, well, I wish you would have done the dishes, but he's got to keep his hands soft in case he decides to become a pole vaulter at the age of 40 again. 
right? It doesn't happen. The things that you are interested in when you are dating are really the things that keep you together in marriage. But there's a view of this verse where you can think, I can find the one person. And everything that's most important to me, the kind of car they drive, how much money they make, where they want to live, what music they like, if they fit all of those boxes, then it's perfect. That's not how relationships work. Relationships that thrive are rarely relationships that rely upon instantaneous chemistry. It's more about the kind of connection that you create. Relationships that work are about the connection that you guys create. And as followers of Jesus, the way that you build that relationship is through the power of love. And a love that keeps no record of wrong. When my wife and I got married almost 19 years ago, I thought I loved her then. I thought I loved everything about her. But two decades later, I know that I love her way more. Because I know who she is, and we've had two decades of being together. Relationships that work do not rely upon instantaneous chemistry, but on a connection that you create. Because what you sow is what you're going to reap. The harvest that you will experience in your relationship is the byproduct of what you put into the relationship. Whether it's for good and choosing the way of love and forgiveness or choosing something else. Years ago, I read this piece in the New York Times by an author named Wendy Plump. And Wendy described the byproducts of her relationship, specifically the choices in her relationship. Wendy both cheated on her husband and also had her husband cheat on her. And she compares that to the decades of faithfulness that her parents experienced. And let me read a section from this piece to you. She says, I I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives are at the ages of 75. Mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it is a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit an affair in neatly? If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion... Or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery. What do you want to create? Because relationships are not about the instantaneous chemistry that you have, which is typically just your brain being flooded with dopamine. But it's about the connection that you create. The decision that I'm going to see no flaw in you because I'm seeing you through the lens of love, which keeps no record of wrong. And so you don't need to be afraid and to hide yourself, but you can be fully seen and fully known because you're fully accepted, because you're building something that lasts. The British poet W.H. Auden says this, like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. 
Marriage isn't about instantaneous chemistry. It's about the connection that you create. And I don't want you to be misled into thinking that I'm saying that your relationship is just about how hard you work at it. We are people of faith. We believe in the power of Jesus and we believe in the power of redemption and grace. And if you want to experience what it was like in the garden, I believe Jesus is the best way to do that. After the resurrected Jesus comes out of the tomb, he sees his beloved friend Mary. And Mary sees the resurrected Jesus for the first time and she confuses him, not for the son of God, not for her rabbi, not for her teacher, but she thinks he is a gardener. And I think that's just a little foreshadow to what the work of Jesus in your relationship can do. That Jesus is the one who takes you back to the garden. And the power of redemption shows you that there is a way for love to overcome your sins and the sins of anyone else. So that the power of love can enable you to no longer just see the flaws, but you can see the beauty in your people. Because love can change things. Love can change your relationships. Love can change your home. And the reason you want Jesus to visit your home is that Jesus is the one who brings a love that can change and save anything. And when you talk about forgiveness, it can easily be watered down. How many times have you heard this interaction happen? Hey, I'm, I'm sorry I did that to you. I'm sorry I wronged you. I'm sorry I disappointed you. I'm sorry I sinned. I'm sorry I did the wrong thing. And we want to respond and say, it's no big deal. That's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And what we do is we water down the effects of someone else's decisions on us. And we act like saying no big deal is a way to minimize what happened. But as people who understand the story of Jesus, we know forgiveness is not something that's easily given out. It comes at a cost. As Christians, forgiveness is given to us because Jesus died on the cross. It cost him his life. And when you forgive someone else, it's going to cause you to experience a death. That you have to die to something. You have to die to having resentment. You have to die to having this grudge. You have to die to having this sense of superiority over the person who did something wrong to you. You have to die to looking down at them. You have to die to all this because forgiveness isn't cheap. It's not cheap. Forgiveness isn't cheap. Now, I know we have some people in the room who aren't married, and maybe you're interested in getting married. And one of the things a lot of people talk about when they want to get married is this this list of the person they want to marry. And let let me clarify exactly what I think about lists. I think there is some value to have a list. And I think there are certain things that need to be on it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to marry someone who is a follower of Jesus. That needs to be on your list. You need to follow, you need to choose to marry someone that's committed to family like you are. You need someone who's honest. But once you start getting into the specifics after that, I think you're somewhat in a fool's errand, right? I had this uh, piece of advice, this little story actually that was given to me in my Thursday lunch group. And usually I don't source every time someone comes to my Thursday lunch group and gives me feedback on the sermon because it would just be too hard to do that every week. But this week I'm going to make an exception because this week my air conditioner at our house went out 
And this particular person who was at my Thursday lunch group heard that my air conditioner was out and gave me a mobile air conditioning unit for my house. And so I've slept in air conditioning because of this person. So I'm going to reference his name. So there's this guy at Westover who's very godly and very Christ-like. Dare I say the most Christ-like person here named David Trevino. (laughs) Who said that when he was in college, he had this friend who had his list. And on his list was some peculiar things. The person I'm going to marry had nails that looked a certain way. Her ankles were going to look a certain way. Her hair was a certain way. And this guy was from the east, like the eastern hemisphere. And he didn't want to marry someone from a different country in the eastern hemisphere. After college, he's single. And years later, David gets a call from this gentleman. And this gentleman says, hey, I I married someone. And David says, congratulations, that's so awesome. Where's she from? It was the exact country he didn't want to marry someone from. You you often find yourself in relationships and things don't go exactly as you imagine. Because if you start looking for all the small little details as being of utmost importance, it's just not how it works. Someone else on Thursday told me another story about a list. This other person had a list that was a little different than the ones that I've ever heard before. Maybe different than the list than you've heard. This person was married for 40 years. His wife passed away. This person is interested in having another relationship. And so he made a list. But his list was for his significant other, saying, these are the things that I can offer to you. This is how I can serve you. This is how I can love you. This is what I can be for you. That's a good list. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love keeps no record of wrong, but also that love is not self-seeking. If you're going to get a list, make it like that. Love isn't self-seeking. It gives to others. And it changes how you see people. A decade ago, when Lindsay and I were living outside of Dallas, I went to visit a friend in uh, a retirement community. His name was Leroy. Leroy was married for some 50 years and then his wife passed away. And I came to meet Leroy, and Leroy was sitting with one of his friends, one of his neighbors in the retirement community, who also was a widow, who also had been married for 50 years. And they start talking about the relationship, and Leroy starts talking about how, uh, how it's so hard to keep going, and how it's so easy to want to just give up after your significant other is gone. Talk about how hard it was to keep going after his wife had passed away. And he starts tearing up, and his friend starts tearing up, and I start tearing up. And then to kind of break the mood, Leroy asks his friend, what, what was the last thing that your wife said to you before she passed away? And his friend said, well, the last thing my wife said to me was, honey, don't make a fool of yourself. <laughs> There's something about love that makes you know that your husband can make a fool of himself. There's something about love that makes you aware that your husband has flaws. Those don't matter the most. That what matters the most is what you've created. And the power of love enables you to look at your people and say there is no flaw in you. Because love keeps no record of wrong. 